Sometimes we despair when we look out into the world and we see the ungodly and we see so many young people, as you've talked about, far away from the Lord and we wonder how could they ever be saved, how could they ever be reached with the gospel and yet the message that we have is a message that transforms lives and changes men and women and we have example after example in the scripture of those that were hardened sinners being converted to Christ. Just recently we had a lady who came to give a personal word of testimony uh, at a special family night service that we have had in our own congregation. She was from England. She was brought up in a, a home where her mother and father were not married. Um, her father was a communist. Her mother was a spiritist. So she had not, not a very good start in life. And uh, she had a desire in her heart. What knowledge she had of a God out there. I want to find God. And so she went to uh, a Church of England minister and said, how do I find God? And he said, you don't have to worry about that until you're about 80. You know, so there was no help for her there. And that started her on a great search. She, she was brought up, uh, abused by her uncle. She took her first drink when she was six. She was drunk at the age of 13 and um, became pregnant. Her mother made her have an abortion. So this is the kind of a background that she had, far, far away from God. She then ended up in the Mormons for four years, went as far as she could, as, as a woman could in the Mormon uh, faith and then due to some of the beliefs because they don't tell you everything at the start what they believe if Mormons told you everything and they believed you wouldn't have anything to do with them but uh, they suck you in gradually and uh, she soon discovered that it was uh, a farce and she left that she went to the Jehovah's Witnesses she studied Islam she studied Hare Krishna uh, so from one to another searching, searching in her heart to find God she ended up in a a charismatic meeting and made a profession. But even there for a period of three years she saw nothing but emptiness and broken lives and broken uh, families. Uh, one young man had a condition of schizophrenia and was told he had a demon and he had to get off his medication, which he did. And he jumped off a block of flats and killed himself. He thought he was the Apostle Paul. So that's, that's the kind of environment that this woman went through for many years <coughs> she came to a place where she felt she didn't want to go on and she had purpose to just kill herself to commit suicide and she was invited along to a gospel meeting she told the person I've tried it all religion hasn't got the answer but he persuaded her to come and she got saved truly saved this time and uh, she's been going on with the Lord for many years and she didn't make the appeal to us be a witness for Christ. When people, even of false religion, come to your door, tell them of Christ. Tell them of the Saviour. Mm. You know, I suppose it's in us all. Get rid of them as quick as you can. Uh, they're peddling a false gospel, but they're in darkness, they're in ignorance, and they need the truth as well. So it's good to know that the Lord is able to save. Mm. He's able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Him. And we should pray in the midst of the darkness of our nation, that the Lord will move mightily 
and souls are being saved. We're greatly encouraged uh, that here and there, not in great numbers, but ones and twos, a few, uh, are coming to know Christ as their saviour. Someone asked me today, am I just back from Romania? The answer to that is no. I was in Romania uh, in June and we had the privilege of preaching the first night of a gospel mission in a new church that was, was open, a new church building that was opened in a village called Utvan. And they asked me would I come and speak at the first night of, the, of a gospel uh, mission that they were having. And four young people came to the Lord that night. So the Lord is saving. And uh, the pastor of the church there uh, emailed me yesterday to say that one of those young ladies that uh, got converted, she was baptised last week, and her mother has come to know the Lord. So, though, you know, it just rejoices our heart when we hear of souls being saved. One of the greatest pieces of news that you can hear nowadays of people coming to know the Lord. And you think of Luke chapter 15 and the parables of the lost ones. We have the lost sheep and the lost silver and the lost son. And uh, not only is there the rejoicing in the, the, the shepherd's heart, and there was when the, the sheep was found, but he called his neighbours and his friends and, and said, Rejoice with me. And there is joy when we, when we tell others that some soul has been found by the Lord and saved by sovereign grace and just rejoices our hearts we also have contacts I was telling Mr Toms today about um, I work in Nepal there's a, a man by the name of Paul Thapa who got converted his father was a Hindu priest this young man came into contact with the gospel he got saved he got a burden to go and be a witness to his own people most missionaries that go to Nepal go to the cities and the towns but he was from the villages and the mountain areas uh, quite hard to get to but he went and he began to preach the gospel and, and some time passed by and very very little was happening and then just suddenly and how often is the word suddenly used it's biblical terminology and we read about it through the centuries too when suddenly God moved and he moved mightily and uh, souls were now being converted he went to the next village they were being converted the next village until there's now 25 churches in a period of two years that have been founded and 1,500 people have been converted. So you hear, that's, that's New Testament stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And though we lament over our nation, uh, yet here and there through the world and other places, there's a great hearing for the gospel and men and women are coming to know Christ. And uh, we're going to look into this chapter 10 of the Acts of the Apostles and we have the conversion of Cornelius <coughs> and company the opening up of the gospel to the Gentile world thank you again Mr. Toms and uh, to the members of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony for inviting me over in the providence of God we got here despite the uncertainty of last evening Mr. Toms was wondering what he was going to preach on. Uh, today, I did say, well, I could send you some notes over if they could help you. We, we had just had a Bible conference in Balamuni. It was a, an Answers in Genesis conference. And uh, Paul Taylor was a scientist. He came to speak. He had been a scientist teacher for 17 years. Uh, so he was well acquainted with the scientific side of everything. 
but he's coming with the premise, we believe the Bible. That's, that's the starting point for the believer. Um, we believe the word of God. And of course, true science does not in any way conflict with what the Bible teaches. And uh, I was telling a story because somebody told it to me of a very famous scientist who had been touring the country giving science lectures and to him had been assigned a chauffeur. And uh, the chauffeur one day said to the scientist, he says, I'm not very happy with this arrangement. You are a famous scientist and you're getting paid a lot of money to give these lectures and I'm just a chauffeur and I'm just getting paid a chauffeur salary. So the scientist said, we will swap roles and uh, you can give the lecture tonight, you can be the scientist and I will drive you. So they, they actually exchanged their, their clothes and uh, the, chauffeur, the chauffeur went that night to give the lecture on science. He stood up and he, he gave it with great conviction because it was all there before him in the notes. And the meeting was so good that the chairman of the meeting said, now we're going to have a question and answer time. <laughs> So the first question was put, and he, said, he was saying, what am I going to do? And uh, the question was put, and he thought, and he said, this question is so dumb. In fact, it is so dumb, I'm going to ask my chauffeur to answer it. <laughs> so I'm the chauffeur. Mr. Tobbs is the famous scientist. I'm going to give the lecture. He's going to answer the questions, if there are any questions at the end. Acts chapter 10, with the word of God before us, let us pray and seek the face of the Lord. Let's pray earnestly that the Lord will speak to us. We thought about the source of prophecy this afternoon, and the source of prophecy really is the Holy Spirit of God. He moved holy men of old to write down the words of God. And we're thinking about the witness of prophecy now, and this is leading us to Jesus Christ And if we can be led to Christ in this meeting, it'll be worthwhile. Mm. Our God and Father, we thank Thee for the opportunity to be together in fellowship, the one with the other. We thank Thee for the reading of Thy Word, for the conversions that we learn about in this chapter, when Cornelius, members of his family and friends, came to know the Saviour. And Lord, there's not a time when we hear about those who have been converted to Christ, but it rejoices our hearts. And Lord, that we have from time to time the privilege of pointing others to Christ, and there's nothing like it. To see souls brought out of darkness and brought into the light of the gospel. We think of the young people just down the road here beside us. We think of the many in the nation, so dark and far away from God. We hear of what the Lord is doing in other countries and many being converted and yet our land is lying under terrible, terrible darkness. O God, we pray that thy people will be faithful in their stand for Christ, in their spread of the gospel. And as we witness to him, we pray that we will see others brought to the saving knowledge of the Saviour. Bless us now in thy word. We pray that thou wilt grant us the help of the Holy Spirit of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we come to think about the witness of prophecy, I want to direct your attention to verse 43. And the opening phrase 
of this verse of scripture. Acts chapter 10 verse 43. To him give all the prophets witness. This is one of the most amazing chapters in the history of the New Testament church. Which shows how the message of the gospel is opening fully to the Gentile world. So that they too might be saved. And of course we are very grateful to God that it was so. And that we too are brought under the influence and the power of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. I was looking up Matthew Henry when I was looking at this chapter. And this is what Matthew Henry had to say. It is a turn very new and remarkable. Which the story of this chapter gives to the Acts of the Apostles. Hitherto both at Jerusalem and everywhere else where the ministers of Christ came, they preached the gospel only to the Jews or those Greeks that were circumcised and proselyted to the Jews' religion. But now, lo, we turn to the Gentiles, and to them the door of faith is here opened. Good news indeed to us as sinners of the Gentiles. Two God-given visions providentially come together to make this happen. The first one is to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who is directed by the Lord to send for Peter. And this he does, and the account is in the opening eight verses of the chapter. The second vision is given to Peter, who was directed to go to Cornelius, though he was a Gentile, And the preacher was to go without argument. And we know the scene that is set before him by the Lord. The sheet that is set before him. And the vision of the different beasts and creeping things. And how this was uh, a, a lesson to Peter. What he was to do. And Peter obeyed. And we have that from verse 9 through to verse 23. What we have in the remainder of the chapter very simply is this. Number one. The happy interview between Peter and Cornelius at Caesarea from verse 24 to 33. Number two, the sermon Peter preached to the house of Cornelius from verse 34 to 43. And then thirdly, the baptizing of Cornelius and his friends, first of all with the Holy Ghost and then with water. And we have that in the latter verses of the chapter from verse 44 to 48. Peter is the man that is used by God to bring the uncircumcised Gentiles into the Christian church. And Cornelius, this Roman centurion, is the first together with his friends and his family to be admitted into the church. The sermon preached by the apostle to these Gentiles was a message that centered upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. All true Gospel preaching must be this kind of sermon. A message whose central and controlling subject is none other than our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Every true preacher and every true Christian church must get to that place where they can truly say, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. We preach Christ. And thank God Christ crucified. You remember when Philip went down to Samaria, we're told that he preached Christ unto them. As soon as Saul of Tarsus was converted, he went into the synagogues and he preached Christ. 
And the message of Peter to Cornelius is no different. You study the chapter, a brother has read it for us, and he's preaching Jesus Christ unto these people. Look there at verse 36. It says that he preached peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Verse 38, he speaks of how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And the message goes on to set before the people the death and the resurrection of the Saviour. Now, obviously we only have a, a synopsis of the message here. We haven't got the message in full, but it's giving us an outline of what Peter presented to the household of Cornelius and those who had gathered that day. And if you look there at verse 39, he tells them about Jesus Christ who was slain and hanged on a tree, setting before them the cross. And in verse 40, how that God raised him up the third day and showed him openly. Speaking of the resurrection, two great pillars of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And then he went on to tell them about the judgment in verse 42, how Jesus Christ was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. And then Peter standing before Cornelius and the other Gentiles who had gathered to hear the message of the gospel, that gospel whose uh, centre was upon Christ, he makes this tremendous statement that we're taking for our text this evening. Verse 43, to him, that is to Jesus, to him give all the prophets witness. We're th focusing our thoughts uh, tonight upon the witness of prophecy. And that witness of prophecy, as we shall come to see, and we're thinking again of the Old Testament scriptures, is a witness to the person of Christ. Prophecy, as we said this afternoon, signifies the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. It's not only to foretell, but perhaps more especially to foretell the mind of the Lord. The witness of prophecy, therefore, centers upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi clearly pointed to the coming of the Saviour, the promised Messiah into the world. As I was thinking upon the meetings today, I was in brief correspondence with Mr. Toms. And uh, I was just trying to test his mind as to what he was thinking about when he gave out the, the titles, the source of prophecy and the witness of prophecy in the he emailed me a couple of lines. I'm very thankful to that, uh, to Mr. Toms for that. But he pointed out a wonderful little thought uh, to me. How that the Bible begins and ends with titles of Christ. In the beginning. Now I know the beginning there is speaking about the beginning of the universe. The beginning of the heavens and, and the earth. But what we have at the beginning is a title of the Saviour. He is the beginning. He's the beginning of all things. And if you go right to the end of the Bible, the very last word is the word Amen. And that's another title of Jesus Christ. I'd never really noticed that before, but I was glad that he pointed it out. The Bible beginning and ending with titles of Christ. And you know, my friends, all in between is about the same person. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ, our wonderful Saviour. 
I want you to come with me in your mind's eye to a little road in Israel known as the Emmaus Road. And this time I want you to join the two travellers, Cleopas and his companion, as they walk along the road with weary steps and with a sad with a sad heart. It's the very first day of the week. And Jesus has risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. He has already shown himself unto Mary Magdalene. He has shown himself to certain women who were returning from the sepulchre. And also to Simon Peter when Simon was alone. And now he comes to walk with these two disciples who were walking together to Emmaus. And they're talking about their master's crucifixion. Those things that had happened recently in Jerusalem. And we read those remarkable words. While they communed together and reasoned. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. They did not perceive who he was. They did not know that it was indeed the Lord Jesus Christ that had come to join them and to walk with them. The Bible says that their eyes were holden, that they should not know him. But something was to happen on that journey that transformed their sorrow into joy. And that caused their heart to burn within them as Jesus talked with them by the way. What was that something? Well listen to their own testimony. He opened to us the scriptures. And what were these scriptures? The prophetic word of the Old Testament. Those passages of holy writ which foretold of him the promised saviour. Luke tells us. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament is full of Christ. In every part of the Old Testament, beginning at the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, proceeding through all the, the prophets, Jesus Christ declared unto them the things concerning himself. You will probably know by now that uh, I love to read the writings of Bishop Ryle. And commenting on this verse, Ryle said, Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice ordained in the law of Moses. Christ was the true deliverer and king of whom all the judges and deliverers in Jewish history were types. Christ was the coming prophet greater than Moses, whose glorious advent filled the pages of prophets. Christ was the true seed of the woman who was to bruise the serpent's head, the true seed in whom all nations were to be blessed, the true Shiloh, whom the people were to be gathered, the true lamb to which every daily offering pointed, the true high priest of whom every descendant of Aaron was a figure. These things... Or something like them, we need not doubt, were some of the things which our Lord expounded in the way to a mess. Dr. Mike Barrett from Greenville, South Carolina, some of you may know of him, may know about him, may even have met him. He wrote a wonderful little volume entitled Christ, or Beginning at Moses, Beginning at Moses. 
in which he sets forth a guide to finding Christ in the Old Testament. In his introduction, setting forth the purpose and the plan of the book, he said, If Christ is the central theme of Scripture and the key that unlocks the meaning and message of the Old Testament, it is imperative that every reader of the Old Testament see the Lord Jesus. Peter preaching to Cornelius was concerned that this dear man and all who heard him that day saw Christ. To him, to Christ, give all the prophets witness. I want us to look at the witness born in the Old Testament scriptures, which wonderfully and remarkably point to the blessed Saviour who came in the fullness of time when God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were <laughs> under the law. First of all, let me say that Christ is revealed in the statements of the prophetic word. Every aspect of the person and the work of Jesus Christ is foretold in clear, unmistakable statements of the Old Testament prophetic word. All the cardinal doctrines, all the foundational truths to do with our Saviour are foretold in the Old Testament. All the prophets gave witness to this. And so we can say that the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus Christ is set forth very clearly in the Old Testament. One of the most famous prophetic texts that predicted the virgin birth of God's dear Son, I want you to turn to it this time, is in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. There has been controversy over the word that is used here that is translated into English, the word virgin. Some suggest it just means a young woman. It's a stronger word. It means a young woman who's not married, a young woman who is pure and clean, very, very clearly identifying one that is a virgin. And here in the prophetic word, and we're speaking about six, seven hundred years before the incarnation, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Beyond all shadow of a doubt, the Old Testament prophets spoke and wrote of a special, unique person who would come into the world, who would be born of a virgin and be none other than fairy God, the fairy God, our Emmanuel, God with us. Now Jesus Christ had to be virgin born in order to be perfectly human and perfectly divine at the same time. As our mediator, he had to be perfectly related both to God and to man. And thus by the virgin birth there was a union between humanity and deity that the New Testament aptly terms the mystery of godliness. For God was manifest in the flesh. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. The fact that Paul calls it a mystery means that it is a truth that is totally beyond human invention. And a truth that God, a truth that could not possibly be known except by divine revelation. It's almost impossible for the human mind 
to grasp such a truth or to explain such a union between the humanity and the deity of Christ. We are grateful to the godly men of spiritual and mental genius who under God have constructed some of the most powerful and profound confessional statements. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Two whole, perfect and and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The Holy Spirit of God overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and the Holy Son of God was conceived in her womb. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The New Testament confirms the application of this text to Christ very, very clearly. When in Matthew's Gospel chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23 it says, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. And so the Old Testament plainly speaks about the virgin birth and the deity of God's dear son. The Old Testament also reveals the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Again, Isaiah foretells of his upbringing and of what we might call his days of obscurity. Isaiah 53 We are told that Christ in in verse 2 of the chapter shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. How accurate this description really was. In the New Testament we read about his birth and his infancy. How the Lord Jesus was born. Few people came to see him. We have the shepherds and we know that Simeon saw him. We know that Anna saw him. And then later on the wise men came from the east when the Lord was about one or two years of age in his infancy. And apart from one other singular incident, when the Lord Jesus was a boy of twelve sitting in the temple among the doctors of the law, busily engaged in his father's business, we read nothing about him until he began his public ministry at the age of 30. Those were the years of obscurity. When Jesus Christ was growing up as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Isaiah goes on to speak in the same chapter about his rejection of men. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Doesn't John tell us how he came unto his own and his own received him not? When we turn to Isaiah chapter 61, we have a prophetic first person declaration of the Messiah that encapsulates the essence of his ministry. Where we read these words, keep in mind it is the Saviour speaking here, prophetically speaking, 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now this prophecy is speaking about Christ. is clearly confirmed by the fact that Jesus used this prophecy to identify himself as the Messiah Messiah at the beginning of his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, which brings us to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 through to verse 21. He comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, It's good to have a custom to go to the house of God and this was the custom of our Saviour. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so forth and so on. Jesus applies this Old Testament scripture directly to himself. See, the Old Testament prophetic word pointed to the life and the ministry of God's dear Son. It also revealed the sufferings and the death of Christ. And perhaps there's not a a greater or more glorious prophecy outlining this than what we've mentioned, Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to some of these words. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And also there in verse 12. Therefore I divide my portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This chapter is leading us very vividly to the cross, to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is filled with details about the atoning death and sacrifice of our blessed Saviour. Much of this is associated with the cross itself. And the circumstances and the events surrounding that day when he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. His betrayal. His silence before his accusers. 
his scourging, the plucking off of his beard, the piercing of his hands and his feet and his side, the dividing of his garments, the mockery of the onlookers, the preservation of his bones from being broken. All these things the Old Testament prophets spoke about. I would draw your attention to one of my favorite psalms. It's the Psalm 22. It's the psalm that's all about the cross. Psalm 22 is about the Savior. Psalm 23 is about the shepherd. And Psalm 24 is about the sovereign. It's always in that order. You need to get to know the Savior. The one that was crucified on the cross of Calvary. And then you know him as your shepherd. And then you know him as your sovereign. And this Psalm 22 is all about the cross. Some people believe that when Jesus Christ was dying at Calvary that he repeated the whole of the Psalm 22. I don't know whether that is so or not, but it could be very likely that Jesus Christ did repeat all these words. It is full of statements that remind us about Christ crucified. Verse 1, one of the cries on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 7, O they that see me laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Verse 12, Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. Verse 15. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Verse 16. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them. And cast lots upon my vesture. These verses all lead us to the cross. Martin Luther said this is a kind of gem among the Psalms and is peculiarly excellent and remarkable. It contains those deep, sublime and heavy sufferings of Christ when agonizing in the midst of the terrors and pangs of divine wrath and death which surpasses all human thought and comprehension. I know not whether any hearts of the godly can so truly perceive those sighs and groans inexpressible by man which their Lord and head Jesus Christ uttered when conflicting for us in the midst of the day of death and in the midst of the pains and terrors of hell wherefore this psalm ought to be most highly prized by all who have had any acquaintance with temptations of faith and spiritual conflicts what a psalm it is Zechariah 13 and verse 7 should not be overlooked in this study. This text is important because it identifies who the Messiah is and because it makes a very powerful statement about his sacrificial death. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand 
upon the little ones. God calls his son, Jesus Christ, my shepherd. And the man that is my fellow. My shepherd and my fellow. The shepherd is a clear reference to the one shepherd that God promised to set up over his people, even his servant David, a messianic prophecy from Ezekiel 34 and verse 23. The use of the possessive pronoun my, my shepherd, suggests both the divine appointment and the special relationship that exists between the shepherd and Jehovah. When he referred to Christ being my fellow, it pointed to the deity of the Saviour. The word fellow occurs only here and in the book of Leviticus where it is usually translated neighbour. It refers to those who have things in common such as laws and privileges. It would be inappropriate for God in this text in, in Zechariah 13 and 7 to apply this term to a mere mortal man. Rather it refers to God's associate or nearest one. He stands not only in proximity to God, but he stands equal to God. He participates and shares in the divine nature. He is God. Perhaps Zechariah 13 and 7 was in the mind of Jesus Christ. When in John chapter 10, speaking of himself as the good shepherd, he declared, I and my father are one. In the same passage of John chapter 10, Christ says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And thus Zechariah tells of how the father is heard to say, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Smite the shepherd. And so it was that God the father plunged the sword of divine wrath and vengeance into his own son. When he was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God's way of salvation required the sacrifice of the shepherd. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood the flaming blade must slake. Thy heart its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. Zechariah leads us to the cross. Where the sword of divine justice awoke against the good shepherd. Who was the father's equal. So that a cleansing fountain could be opened. For sin and for uncleanness. The burial of Jesus Christ is clearly revealed. By the prophetic word. The bodily burial of Christ was... A conclusive proof of the reality of his death. Jesus didn't faint on the cross. He, he didn't swoon on the cross. He died. And his body was placed in a cold, dark tomb. Let me refer you to that grand prophecy again. Isaiah 53 verse 9 where we read that he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Michael Barrett suggests an alternative translation. His grave was assigned to be with the wicked man. But he was with a rich man in his uniquely significant death. 
Looking at this text in this light will show us that having been executed as a criminal, as far as Rome was concerned, Christ would most likely be assigned to be buried with the rest of the criminals had it not been for the intervention of a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph who successfully begged for the body of Christ from Pilate and laid that body in his own tomb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. Paul clearly declared to the Corinthians that Christ not only died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried according to the Scriptures, but that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. One of the plainest prophecies of Christ's resurrection in the Old Testament is the Psalm 16 and verse 10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. In the New Testament, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he makes it plain that, that David in the Psalm 16 was declaring that Christ was the single fulfilment of that prophecy. David had the resurrection of Christ in mind. In fact, Peter makes it clear that David, as a prophet, knew exactly what he was writing about. And he knew exactly who he was writing about. For it says, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. David spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this verse of scripture in the Psalm 16. The second coming of our blessed Saviour is revealed and expounded in the Old Testament scriptures. Old Testament scriptures is filled with references to the time when Jesus Christ will come again in power and great glory. And I think of Zechariah 14. It's open before me here. Behold the day of the Lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And you can read on down the chapter. This is speaking about the day in which Jesus Christ will come again in glory, and his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives. So these are some of the statements of the prophetic word that point vividly to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Peter, speaking to Cornelius, he says to him, to Christ, gave all the prophets witness. These statements. But could I say, secondly, the symbols and the shadows of the prophetic word reveal Christ? The symbol is simply an object lesson. It is a sign, something real. That points beyond itself to a moral or spiritual truth. The symbol is not the truth. 
It is an object lesson teaching a particular truth. And we use this kind of object lesson all the time, especially with children. I'm sure you do it in the churches that you represent. And very often we will use an object to, to speak of a great truth. I know many years ago, taking a children's day, I brought a nettle. You all know what nettles are, don't you? And what a dot leaf is. Yeah, if you're familiar with both. Incidentally, they so often grow together. And, uh, well, I didn't go into it, but there's a wonderful lesson, object lesson for the children uh, that speaks about the sting of sin. And you, you have it in the nettle. And then the remedy, at least we were told, and it does work, if you take a dock leaf and uh, you rub it into the sting, it takes away the sting. And right beside the nettle so often is the remedy. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Right beside the sinner is the remedy, is Christ the Lord. So there's a wonderful truth that you can bring out of that. We use object lessons all the time. A shadow is another helpful analogy used by God to describe the relationship between Christ and the prophecies of him in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul called some of the Old Testament types shadows. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17, he said, They're a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. A shadow exists only because there is a real substance that casts the shadow. It is also true to say that a shadow distorts the substance. In other words, it is always an imperfect representation of the, the reality. The substance is always better than the shadow. Furthermore, a shadow disappears when the sunlight is directly overhead. And when the true light of the world came, he dispelled the shadows. Just as Christ fulfilled or will fulfill every word of prophecy about him, so he fulfilled every shadow and symbol about him. So what are these symbols and shadows? Well, people of the Old Testament were wonderful types of Christ. In a sense, every prophet, priest and king was prophetic of Christ. But there were some outstanding examples. Jonah was a prophet, but Christ is greater than Jonah. Luke chapter 11, verse 32. Aaron was a priest. In fact, he was the high priest. But Christ is greater than Aaron. Hebrews 7 and verse 11. Solomon was a king, but Christ is greater than Solomon. Luke chapter 11, verse 31. So there were, there were people in the Old Testament who were wonderful types of Christ. There were also things which were wonderful pictures of the Saviour. You can think especially of the tabernacle. It was a simple, yet a complex structure that foreshadowed Christ and the gospel from every angle and from every action associated with it. The word that is translated tabernacle simply means the place of dwelling. Although it is not a biblical word, we often speak about the Shekinah glory of Christ to refer to the visible manifest presence of God. Theophanies that were associated with both the tabernacle and the temple. 
When we read about the glory of the Lord covering the tent or filling the house, we call it the Shekinah glory. Because Shekinah means dwelling. It is God dwelling with his people. God tabernacling among his people. God taking up residence with his people. What the name Emmanuel declares, the tabernacle illustrated God with us. We could go on to speak about the furniture of the tabernacle. We have in time the altar, the laver, the showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant. All items rich with spiritual symbolism pointing to Christ. So things of the Old Testament are pictures of the Saviour. And events of the Old Testament were most symbolic of Christ. Permit me to mention just one. And as you can understand the things that I'm saying, I'm only scratching the surface because you can go through reference after reference, example after example in the Old Testament. But uh, I'm going to mention just one. Genesis 22. The story of Abraham and Isaac. This event is a most astounding prophecy of God's sacrificing of his son Jesus Christ. And here we learn of a great trial in the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 22. That God did tempt or try Abraham and said unto him Abraham. And he said behold here I am. And he said take now thy son Thine only son Isaac whom thou lovest. And get thee into the land of Moriah. And offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham, oh in obedience to God, he rose up early in the morning. Saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And cleaved the wood for the burnt offering. And rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ bore the cross, the wood upon his back on the way to Calvary. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and they went both of them together. Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham, Abraham knew what he was going to do, but did not yet reveal it unto Isaac. My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together, and they came to the place which God had told them off, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him upon, laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And you know the rest of the story. The angel of the Lord cried out, and Isaac was spared on that occasion. You see, these verses I've read, and really, it's a sermon in itself. Give us a wonderful, wonderful picture, a wonderful shadow of that which was yet to be. God taking his Isaac, his only son, 
the son that he loved and putting him there upon the cross of Calvary and slaying him and crucifying him for our sin. I want to say in conclusion, thirdly, the sacrifices of the prophetic word reveal Christ. Sacrificial system under the Mosaic administration was a graphic though imperfect picture of the work of Christ. In every way, these sacrifices were types prophesying of Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The general and regular sacrifices fell into two broad categories. The sweet savour offerings and the guilt offerings. And we read about them in the opening seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. Those chapters record the most detailed instructions about the sacrifices. There you will read about the burnt offering, the meat offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. All pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. Perhaps no sacrifice depicted Christ and his redemptive work more than the slaying of the Lamb. Every Israelite would be most familiar with the Lamb. They would be well acquainted with this prophetic animal of Old Testament times. When John the Baptist stood on the banks of the river Jordan. And Jesus Christ was approaching in the distance. And the crowd was gathered. And John the Baptist lifted up his voice and pointed to the Savior. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Those Israelites, every Jewish hearer hearer in the audience that day, knew exactly what John the Baptist was referring to, what he meant. There is a profound lesson recorded at the beginning of days in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. I'll mention mention this in passing. After the fall... And the effort that man made to clothe himself in the fig leaves, we discover that God provided a better, more durable garment. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. That's the first time you read about a sacrifice, the shedding of the blood in the Old Testament. And it is a type of what Jesus Christ came to do, a picture here. Of his redeeming work. So that you and I could be clothed. So that we might be adorned with the spotless robe of righteousness. That was woven for us at the cross of Calvary. You can think of Cain and Abel. In the next chapter. And how Abel brought in verse 4. The firstlings of his flock. And the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel. And to his offering. A type. Of Jesus Christ. In the lamb that was offered. By Abel. You can think of the ram caught. In the thicket by his horns. In Genesis 22. And verse 13. That ram that was offered instead of Isaac. Remember what Abraham said. My son God will provide himself. A lamb for a burnt offering. Pointing to the lamb of God. Who would come to be. That lamb slain on the cross. And I could take you to the land of Egypt and the terrible plagues of judgment that fell upon hardened Pharaoh and his people. 
The tenth plague being the plague of death, God says, yet will I bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And how dark and desperate that plague turned out to be. A plague that caused a great cry to echo through the whole land that night. But God instructed his people to take to them every man a lamb according to their households. And they were to slay the lamb. That lamb that was without blemish. They were to take the blood of the lamb and strike it on the side posts and on the lintel of their doors. And God promised when I see the blood I will pass over you. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb slain on the cross for us. He that was without blemish, he that was perfect, crucified for our sins. These things, the statements of the prophetic word, the symbols and the shadows of the prophetic word, and the sacrifices of the prophetic word, and much more, all highlight the theme of Peter's message to Cornelius and the Gentiles. He preached Jesus Christ. Unto them. He told them of the wonderful prophecies of the Old Testament that spoke of Christ, especially Christ the Redeemer. And this is our chief end. This is our chief task. Still today, this is the message that God blesses. And as we preach up Jesus, and we present to a dying world the Lord who came into this earth to be that sacrifice for sin, we will see, see things happening. For the great glory of our God. Because you see there is a purpose. There is a purpose in view. If you think of the text that we've given to you. Here in Acts chapter 10. And verse 43. To him. Give all the prophets witness. That through his name. Whosoever believeth in him. Shall receive. Remission of sins. That he preached Jesus. He preached Christ crucified. For this purpose that through the name of Jesus, whosoever would believe in him would receive remission of sins. That's why we rejoice in the preaching of Christ. And when we see signs following the preaching and souls being saved, it rejoices our hearts. We've thought about those that have been converted in recent times and what the Lord is doing here and there. We had over two Romania, we preached that first night of the gospel mission. And those four young people came to the Saviour. I said to the pastor of the church, I don't speak their language. You go and talk to them. But he says, no, come and I'll interpret for you. And we had the opportunity to open up the word of God and show them the gospel. Show them the way of salvation. All done by interpretation. And those four young people came to know the Saviour. They believed on Christ. I trust the Lord will bless these thoughts to you and may you rejoice in the theme that we've been considering today, the witness of prophecy that leads us to the beginning and to the Amen, Jesus Christ, our blessed Saviour. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy precious word. We thank thee for the prophecies of the Old Testament that witness to Christ that speaks so clearly and vividly about him in all aspects of his person and work.
Lord, we just rejoice again in these truths that are old yet ever new. These truths that we know so well and yet every time we read them and study them and think upon them, our heart rejoices because we're led to Christ. The one who is the fairest of 10,000 to our souls. The one who is the bright and the morning star. We can say he's the altogether lovely one. May we take something of the presence of Christ home with us as we leave this meeting tonight. We pray, Lord, that we will have thoughts that are precious of our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.